Join me in your Bibles this day in the Gospel of Luke. Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 13, uh, continuing in our study of the Gospel according to Luke. With God's help, if you would turn your hearts and give your attention to the reading of his word. Uh, Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, we come to you this day with so many things on our hearts and minds, so many things that are clamoring for our attention this afternoon. Lord, there are many obstacles that hinder us from knowing the nearness of your presence. There are uh, many things that would hinder us from experiencing the, the peace and rest that only you can provide to our hearts. We are overburdened with many cares. We are um, caught up with the sin that so easily entangles Lord, many of us are in trials and afflictions and and we confess that our faith is found halting and small in the midst of those things. And yet, Lord, in the midst of this, Lord, we are reminded that our one great need is to set our minds and our hearts on you and to seek you, Lord, to seek your face to seek your presence continually. One, one thing is, is needful, that we would seek you while you may be found, that we would learn to walk in faith and obedience 
to all of your ways. And so we come before your great presence today, Lord. We come uh, asking for your help, pleading with you, Lord, that you would grant us the grace in this hour to quiet our souls, to come to find our rest in you. We need your help even in turning our hearts to you. And Lord, I thank you for the finished work of cross I, of Christ. I thank you that uh, we have a savior who has given us his perfect righteousness by which we are able to come to you today and for what his, his victory means to us, that we are cleansed and forgiven, that in him we have a hope and a future. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we open up your word. I pray that you would help us to receive it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the very word of God, and that you would use it for your glory in our lives. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Well, we come now to today's text in Luke chapter 11, where Luke, uh, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, draws our attention to Christ, who is himself drawn away in quiet uh, prayer uh, before the Father. Last week, we saw Mary doing the very same thing, choosing the good portion, what Luke describes as the one necessary thing, fellowship, dependence on the Lord. And we see the same thing in Christ himself. We see in Christ that the Father was his chosen portion and his cup. His affections were set on fellowship and prayer with the Father. And so in keeping with his habit, Jesus is off praying in what Luke describes as a certain place. It really doesn't matter for Luke where this is, what the name of this particular place is. For Luke's purposes, the important thing isn't where the certain place is, but what's happening in that certain place. And what do we find happening according to our text? We find the Lord of glory, our Savior, praying, seeking the face of God. And he's doing this even with all of the incredible demands that ministry must have imposed upon his life. We see the Lord with an established life of prayer and devotion to the Father in the face of everything that was required of him in his earthly ministry. And as we read, especially in the book of Luke, it seems like every chance Jesus has, he's drawing away. He's drawing away in fellowship and dependence upon the Lord. Why was that? Church, why was that the case? There's a lot of things we could say here. We could say certainly Jesus was dependent on the Father in his humanity. He needed the strength and the supply that came from seeking the face of God. And so he did earnestly and regularly, but he also longed for communion. He longed for fellowship with the Father. He delighted in spending time with God. And there was something that was compelling about that for the disciples. 
There's something compelling about that as they witnessed Jesus with the Lord in prayer. There's something about the relationship the son had with the father that the disciples found intriguing and desirable. That's one of the things that you find uh, with the people of God when you're around other believers who walk with God, who carry the fragrance of the knowledge of God wherever they go. You find yourself saying, I want to be like that. I want to know more of what they have come to experience in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are not things that interest those in the world, but they interest us as the people of God. In fact, that's one of those great uh, points of discernment that you can use to, 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 to tell, are you in Christ? Do you want to be with other believers? Do you find something alluring when you see another believer seeking the face of God? pouring his soul out before the Father. The disciples here are apparently watching Jesus pray. And it says that when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. What a wonderful thing that is to ask of the Lord. What a wonderful thing to request of the Savior. They want to grow in this spiritual discipline of prayer. I hope that's true of you. I hope that is true of everyone here today that names the name of Christ. No, beloved, that there is a lot to identify with in terms of where the disciples are in this text. No one becomes a Christian and suddenly finds themselves what we sometimes describe as a prayer warrior. No one just comes into the new birth and suddenly finds themselves fluent in the language of prayer. Not at all. To the contrary, we are like little newborns. We're feeble. We're frail, we fumble, we bumble along, we grasp for, for words. Often we find our minds wandering. Uh, James says we ask for the wrong things at times. Paul says something in Romans 8 that is still true, just as true today uh, for the church as it was in that day. He says, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. So if you've ever felt like this, if you've ever felt at a loss for words when you bow your heart to prayer, you know that your prayers don't sound anything like what you read in the Bible. Look at this passage also and know that you're not alone. If you're a new believer, or even if you're a long time believer and you're still learning as I am to grow In the discipline of prayer, you're in good company today. But this is the starting place. This is the starting place to humble yourself before the Lord and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And know that it's still true also that you have a Savior who takes 
fumbling disciples, and he will teach us. He will help us if we will humble ourselves. If we'll confess our inability, he will draw near to us as we draw near to him. So let's look at this together. Christ helps his disciples. How? Well, he gives them a model prayer. And this is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. It would actually be more accurate to describe this as the disciples' prayer because it's followers of Christ to whom this prayer is given. In fact, you'll notice that he goes on to teach them to pray for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus didn't need forgiveness of sins, praise God. So this is given to us in view of our needs. It's given in view of the priorities that we're to take up, which in turn gives us great confidence because we know this is a perfect prayer. It springs from the mouth of Jesus. We can't say that of our own prayers, but this is a perfect prayer. It's an inspired prayer. Now we might hear that, And we might think to ourselves, well, then I'll just pray these words. That would be to miss the point. Jesus has not given us uh, these, these words, this particular prayer, so that we can utter some special combination of words in some kind of rote way, as if by their recitation alone, we can gain the ear of God. We know that in part because we get to hear Jesus and uh, the disciples pray on many other occasions and we hear the Father answer those prayers. We also see another version of this particular prayer uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Uh, And so the emphasis here is to pattern our petitions off the themes Christ draws our attention to in this particular prayer. Now, brothers, brothers and sisters, before we get to any of the cries or the requests, before any needs are presented or petitions are pleaded, first, there comes a relationship. First, there comes a relationship. There is in the first place, the privilege of prayer. How do we come to God? And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father. Say, Father. We come as children to the Father. We come to the great I am. The the I am that I am. You remember Yahweh, how God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. We come to the eternal father, the creator God, as those who've received the spirit of of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So that, that speaks of a personal, familial kind of relationship here. It speaks of intimacy in the the relationship and connection that we share with God. It speaks of his care for us. Maybe more than anything else, it calls to mind access. That's what the fatherhood of God points to. We have access to our father. Now, not Everyone can do that. Not everyone can call on God 
as father. In order to do that, you must first be born again before you can ever think about calling on God in the way that Jesus Christ outlines for us here in this text. You must first come to a sense of your own sinfulness. You must first admit, actually, I am unworthy to approach this great God at all. Apart from his mercy, apart from his adopting love, I cannot come to him. So how can I come to him? How can I enter into this kind of relationship whereby I come to lay hold of him as Abba, Father? Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's by repenting of your sins and putting your faith in him, in his sacrificial death on the cross, that you come to know that adopting love of God, that you are brought into the family of God. Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and men, The man Christ Jesus, who was given as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. He is the one who has made a way so that sinners like you and I can come into the presence of this great God and dare to open our mouths and say, Father, Father. Jesus gives us that access. Jesus is the one who gives us the freedom to take that title to our lips and call the Lord Father. What a privilege that is. What a privilege we have to approach the Lord of heaven and earth and call him Father. In the Old Testament, did you know that that title is used only 15 times for the Lord? The whole Old Testament. Now you come into the New Testament, and you find that title taken up 255 times. And what does that tell you? What does that tell you about the significance and the intimacy of relationship that we have in and through Christ? It's something special. It's something wonderful. It was not until Christ came that that level of expression and freedom came into such full bloom. And that is something for us to exult in. That that is something to glory in. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Now, where do we see that kind of love? Where do we see the kind of love that John talks about there? God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So church, before we ever begin to think about what to pray for or how to pray, first, we are stopped in our tracks here and we are invited to think about the nature of relationship that we share with almighty God the privilege of prayer. 
Only then do we come to petitions. Now, what springs to the mind of Christ when he teaches his disciples on prayer in terms of petitions? What are those first order desires he exhorts us to have at the very top of our list? Maybe you keep a, a list of prayer requests of things you want to remember to pray for. What's the, at, the, at the top of Christ's prayer request, if you will. Jesus says, here's how to pray. Father, hallowed be your name. And you see how Godward this is in its orientation. This is the priority of prayer. Now, friends, hallowed be your name. That's not just an exclamation. That's not just a statement. He's not just saying your name is holy, though that would be true. This is a petition. This is a word that's usually trans- translated sanctify, uh, to make holy. Now, brothers and sisters, there's nothing we could ever do to make God's name any holier than it actually is. Nothing we could do could ever begin to add to the greatness of God. We couldn't do anything to make his name any more perfect or any more pure than it already is. But by praying this way, what are we doing? We're asking God that his name would be considered holy to the ends of the earth, beginning with our own hearts, beginning with our own hearts. We're praying that our estimation of his glory, of his beauty, of his holiness would continually be heightened, that his name would be exalted in the hearts of men and that he would be worshiped and adored in a way that that befits the splendor of his name, that befits the, the holiness of his name. When the church prays, hallowed be your name, we're saying our chief concern as the people of God is for the honor and the reputation of the name of God in the world. That is what stands in the first place. And I don't know about you, but I can't help but feel a silent rebuke as I think about the priority this takes in the text here and compare that with the things that so often occupy the prayers that spring out of my own heart. As soon as we hear this first petition, we're immediately confronted with just how different this is from where our hearts and minds tend to go, from where they tend to venture in prayer. We are forced to confess our prayer requests are not always taken up with the hallowing of God's name, this great desire to see him sanctified in the earth. Our ambition as the people of God, may God make this to be the case, is not to make a name for ourselves. You remember how uh, the people in Shinar said, let us make a name for ourselves. And they built that tower uh, up into the heavens. That, that's the impulse of every natural man still to this day. But the work of God in the heart changes that. He changes our desires so that now, what, it, what is it? Our desires to see the name of God heralded in the world. 
and not our own, to see his name lifted up. In John chapter 12, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. To get a sense of the significance of that prayer, you really have to understand the context in which Jesus was praying that. This was right after he had rode into Jerusalem on a cult. Right after the the triumphal entry, he said this in an hour when he was about to be lifted up on the cross to suffer and die for the sins of the world, that he might draw all men to himself. And it was in that hour that he was saying, hallowed be your name. Father, glorify your name. In the midst of my affliction and suffering, may your name be lifted high. He'd been with the Father for all of eternity. He knew the glory of the Lord. In fact, he had shared in it himself. And still, as he's about to be lifted up on the cross, he is consumed with one desire that creation would glorify the name of God. And he teaches us here that as we follow him, we are to follow him even in what we pray for even in the petitions that we utter before the Lord, to let our chief aim be to live and even to pray with a holy jealousy for the name of God. Now, similarly, it's also the agenda, not of our own hearts, but of the king who rules over us that we desire to further. Your kingdom come. What does that mean? We have all prayed those words probably many times I've heard unbelievers pray standing at a graveside who have picked up those words along the way and uttered them. What do we mean when we say your kingdom come? I've often thought of this as Psalm 2 put into prayer. Listen to what Psalm 2 says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kingdoms of the, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore... O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come captures that messianic vision and puts it into the form of prayer in just three words. This is what we long for as God's people. 
This is what we desire to see the kingdom of God in its fullness, the glory of the Lord filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. In Christ, in the incarnation, the kingdom has come. Jesus says later in Luke, the kingdom of God's not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And so we can say that the kingdom of God has come because the king has come. Now it is not the kind of kingdom that is accompanied by castles and lords and princes and serfs and, and knights. There aren't big royal crests and bugle calls that you hear all the time. It's something that is manifested within the hearts of mankind. So the kingdom of God has come in that respect. And at the same time, we still await its final consummation. Over in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives us a parable that helps us understand these two dynamics together. He says there, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So again, the kingdom has come. The seed has been planted, but that tree, that plant is still growing. It is still blossoming. It is still flourishing. And there will be a day when that tree is fully grown. There will be a day when the king of righteousness returns in person. And what we read about in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15 will find its full expression. Everyone will know the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Now until then, until then, all of creation and we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You feel the tension there. Something to rejoice in, something to long for. Both are true. And so we pray. The glory of God, the inbreaking of his kingdom, we desire to see the realities of eternity. All of those things outpace earthly aims, earthly desires. This is a prayer that is taken up with God's agenda for the world, his redemptive purposes in creation. Well, now we come to what we need of the Lord. And there's three things here. First provision, verse three, give us each day our daily bread. What do we pray for as far as our temporal needs go? Simply daily bread. Not a big house, not a new car, not a fat paycheck, not a nice retirement fund, but daily bread. And there is a, a recognition here of what comes on either side 
of daily bread, whether it's poverty on the one hand or wealth on the other. And you can find this spelled out in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 8. I want you to listen just to the wisdom of this prayer from Proverbs 30 and verse 8. And it is centered on this same theme. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now, church, do you see how even in our temporal needs, the the concern for the sanctity of God's name still courses through our requests? He's saying there, oh, God, don't give me either too much or too little. If I'm always full, I'm going to be tempted to say, who's Yahweh? I am going to be tempted to deny you by acting like I am the source of my provision. I'm going to make myself out to be a God. I wonder whether you have ever prayed this way. Have you ever said to the Lord God, please don't make me prosper. Please, God. Don't make me prosper any more than I would be able to humbly, wisely manage. Now, if on the other hand, I'm poor, what's the temptation there? Then it is to steal, to to doubt the Lord's provision. And I don't want to profane the name of my God in that way. So therefore, upshot, feed me with the food that's needful for me. And God, ultimately, you know what that is. Give us this day our daily bread. Immediately, we're back to spiritual concerns, the forgiveness of sins. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So you have provision. Now there's pardon. Brothers and sisters, just note, first of all, that in the prayer the Lord Jesus gives to us as a model, we find in an implicit assumption that there is in the life of the believer an ongoing need for cleansing. An ongoing need. Christians are a confessing people. Repentance is an ongoing thing in the lives of the church. If we are praying every day for daily bread, we're also praying every day for daily cleansing, cleansing from sin. Anyone who says otherwise denies the wisdom of Christ and the depth of their own depravity. You remember that wonderful scene in John chapter 13 where Jesus is going around and he is washing the disciples' feet and eventually he gets to Simon Peter and Simon Peter says, I don't know what's going on here. I don't understand this. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus is so gracious and he's so tender there with them. He says, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand He tells him, if I do not wash you, you have no share. You have no share with me. And so Peter 
in typical fashion, what does he do? He jumps at the chance. He says, well, in that case, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And you remember what Jesus says there. He says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. The one who has come to Christ in repentance and faith has already been washed by the mercy of God, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. But we still need daily cleansing. We still need daily cleansing. And we, so we find ourselves presented again and again with this need to come humbly before the throne of grace, confessing things done and left undone every single day. And praise God, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. The blood of the covenant has been poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so we come every day God, saying, God, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, church, the idea here is not that forgiveness is in any, in any way contingent on anything other than God's mercy and grace, as if this was some kind of quid pro quo arrangement. But it is also true that our willingness to forgive is a witness to the gospel's work in our hearts. It is a witness to the fact that the Father who has forgiven us of our sins has indeed forgiven us and we are his children. We do not earn forgiveness. We don't do anything to merit it, but there is in our dealings with each other a reflection of his dealings with us. And so bound up is this in our apprehension, in our understanding of what the gospel is, that Jesus is able to say, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. A refusal to forgive one another is tantamount to a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's provision, there's pardon. Thirdly, we see protection. And lead us not into temptation. So not only do we need cleansing and forgiveness from the penalty of sin, but we need strength. We need strength to withstand the power of sin every day. Now we know God does not tempt anyone. Satan is the tempter. The prayer here is for the strength and the power to resist sin. And, and in doing so, and in praying this way, you see that there's yet another element of humility here. In the way we pray, we are confessing our inability to bear up under temptation on our own. We need the strength of the Spirit. We need the strength. God's grace alone can supply to us. 
I'll reference Peter again. You remember how Jesus, when he came to Peter and he told him of the the temptations that, that were to come, that he would deny the Lord Jesus three times, Peter's impulse was to say, Lord, I would never do that. He said, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. And you know what happened. You know what happened there. We may not be so brazen to say things just exactly like that, but by our prayerlessness, we admit the same attitude within our heart that we think we can stand against temptation in our own strength, and we cannot. Prayer is the antidote to the same kind of self-confidence we see in Peter's heart and that we find in our own. If you are falling into temptation, your first need is to fall on your knees, to humble yourself before the Lord, to seek his strength, to seek his presence continually, to say, lead me not into temptation. Let this be a regular feature of your prayer life, a preemptive strike against the schemes of the devil. Now, having dealt with how to pray, uh, Christ immediately moves into motivation to pray in verses 5 to 13. He moves from what we should pray to why we should pray. And I want, to see, I want you to see the way these two sections are connected this afternoon. Jesus actually spends more time in this latter section, and I, I, I think that's instructive to us. We might summarize this second half by saying Jesus provides strong encouragement to pray boldly for everything at all times in full assurance of faith. Jesus instructs us to pray boldly for everything at all times in full assurance of faith. And he starts with a parable. It's an almost comical scene you have three friends uh, in the picture. There's a host and a guest and a neighbor. And he, he says, just imagine this. Imagine you're in this situation and you've got a friend that shows up late at night around midnight and you need to put him up for the evening. And by the way, he's been on this long day's journey. And so he's famished really, really hungry. And so you, you let him in and you start getting things all, all situated for him. And somewhere along the way, your wife, you know, kind of embellishing a little bit, but she comes up to you and she does that kind of loud whisper that's not really a whisper and says, we don't have anything to eat here. And you think, oh, surely there's got to be something around here. Well, sure enough, you don't have anything in the house. Food is not available just at a moment's notice like it is for us. You can't just run over to Walmart and pick up a loaf of bread when somebody decides to drop in unannounced. It would have been baked for the day, uh, whatever was needed for that day. Well, you have a neighbor next door and they tend to have leftovers. And so you go and you rap on the door and you say, friend, lend me three loaves. I've got this friend and they've just arrived and I don't have anything for him. And the friend starts to do that loud whisper thing again. 
He starts to say, well, my children are all in bed with me. This is typical for first century. They're all bedded down on the same mat in one main living space. And he says, I can't get up. I can't give you anything. But you're not the kind that gives up so easily. And so you keep pounding away. And it says in verse eight, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Yet because of his impudence, your Bible may say importunity, he will give him whatever he needs. Now, neither of those words are words we use very much today, but it means something like brazenness. And in modern parlance, we might say, because of his shamelessness, the man's friendship alone, the relationship that they share, might not be enough to rouse the neighbor out of bed, but if you've got someone there banging on the door at midnight and they're obstinate and they're unrelenting, they're pestering you, eventually he's going to break down. He's going to, to get up and he's going to give you whatever, it, whatever you need so you can be on your merry way. Now, we come to the application as it pertains to prayer in verse 9. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now, loved ones, remember that this illustration Jesus gives is just that. It's an illustration. This is a, a parable. We should not take from this that God is loath to hear us when we cry or that we've got to jump through a bunch of hoops in order to gain his ear, that we've got to ask a certain number of times before he's going to answer us. Prayer is not a way to manipulate God. Prayer is not a way to make God do whatever it is we want him to do. What is Christ getting at here? He is pointing to prayer that is born out of a real desperation. We're not just talking about the kind of routine prayers we pray where we run down the prayer list and we say, okay, uh, what's next? Okay, uh, now I pray for this. No, this, you see here, there's a, a real earnestness. There is a real wrestling with God that says with Jacob, I won't let you go until you bless me. Remember, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray here. And so the primary connection to draw isn't between the neighbor and the Lord but between the host and the man of prayer. That's where the emphasis lies. What do we find in the host? He is bold, he's persistent, he's totally dependent on the neighbor's kindness, 
And so he asks, he seeks, he knocks. And in each case, each one of these words are continuous. Everyone who goes on asking and keeps on seeking and continues knocking, that's the picture Jesus gives us of prayer. We are to pray boldly, confidently, continually, knowing that as we do, we will receive and find the door will be opened to us. He delights to hear us and to answer us. In fact, you can see just how important this is by the way Christ presses it home. He gives them another illustration. If you look at verse 11, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. The whole idea is unconscionable. No one would ever dream of doing something like this. Now, again, we, we shift our attention to the heavenly father, the father par excellence, the father whose dealings with us are always good. They're always gracious. They're always kind. They always issue out of perfect love for his children And what does it say? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see how he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. How much more can we expect good and perfect gifts coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change? So beloved, What does Christ lay the stress on in terms of the motivating basis for our prayers? It's the character of God. It's God's character, who he is, his generosity, his benevolence. He's saying, in effect, church, we have every reason to lift up our hearts to him, to seek his face, to know he rewards those who diligently seek him. You see the superiority, not only in terms of God's fatherhood, but the gift he bestows. He gives the Holy Spirit. He gives the helper. He gives the one who will be with us always, even to the end of the age, the one who guides us into all truth. Uh, The one who works in us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in our lives. He gives us power uh, to be his witnesses. He helps us in our weakness to know how to pray. God gives good gifts to those who ask him. I want to simply ask you today whether your view of the Lord and your understanding of his willingness to hear you and to answer your cries accords with the scripture? Does it accord with what we have seen today of the Father? Does he seem far or near? Is he the gracious, generous, benevolent, loving Father the scriptures reveal him to be? Is he inclined or disinclined to you? In your mind, do you conceive of him as reticent or willing to help? Hear the encouragement of God's word. Ask and seek and knock.
Now, just a few brief observations as we close. First, I want you to notice that this is a corporate prayer. This is a prayer that is corporate in nature. We talk about the one another's in the Christian faith. This is one of the great ones, praying together. Jesus said, when you pray, that you is plural. If he was talking to us in these parts today, he might've said, when y'all pray, pray like this. It's plural. So let us look for opportunities to pray with one another. Let us look for opportunities to bear one another's burdens together, to take them before the throne of God's grace to be a house of prayer. Second, brevity. Jesus said in another place, when you pray, don't heap up empty words as the Gentiles do, thinking that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we see there that even in our prayers, even in our religious activity, it doesn't go untouched by the effects of the fall. We can take the best and the holiest of endeavors and turn them into showmanship and exhibitionism, but many words are not what bend God's ear. It's the heart of his children calling on his father, on their father. And then third, simplicity. This is not a prayer that is laced with religious jargon. It's not a carefully constructed, artfully woven soliloquy. It's not something that would make you stand back and say, that that sounds like it sprang from the lips of angels. Uh, It's not the kind of thing that makes you think to yourself, that is a really impressive prayer. No, it's simple. It's simple. Christ's purposes here are not to make us sound more eloquent or refined, but rather to refine the things we pray for and to encourage our hearts to pray. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you this day. And we come, Lord, asking that you would give us that longing your your disciples had when they said, Lord, teach us to pray. God, we thank you for your willingness to hear us when we call on you. We thank you for the privilege that we have in Christ of calling you Father. We do pray that your name would be hallowed. We pray that your name would be sanctified in our midst. Lord, in the way that we speak about you, in the ways that we relate to one another, in the manner of our lives that we would live in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. We pray that you would use us for your name's sake in the world. 
God, we ask that through the preaching of Christ and him crucified, many, many others would be brought into your kingdom. And we do come today, Lord, mindful of our sin. Lord, we come as spiritual paupers throwing ourselves on your mercy. We don't have anywhere else to go. We ask for your work in our hearts. We pray that you would cleanse us of our sin, that you would deliver us from its power. How precious are these words to us today that everyone who asks receives. Lord, we have received and received and received from you and we need to receive again. We need your grace to sustain us. We need your power to change our lives. Lord, I ask that you would help us to understand our nature, our poverty, our desperation, our weakness. Lord, help us to understand also who you are, uh, your beauty, your holiness, your wealth and riches and strength and willingness to help those that cry out to you. We love you, O God. We love you, O Lord our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen.